Morning. Whoop. Hello, there we are. Uh, we were at, Riley and I were at the Reach Australia conference this week, and what a privilege. I think 278 churches were present with 900 leaders, and with one common vision, that is reaching Australia with the gospel. Uh, they have a, a plan, a hope for in the next 10 years to see 200 churches planted across this nation, and so let's be praying for that end. Well, if you're new and visiting, we're in the middle of a series in the Gospel of Luke, and I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 16, verse 16. You know, we believe in the power of this word as a church. We believe it's God's word to us in its entirety, the bits that are easy to hear and the bits that are hard to hear as well. And so this is going to be one of those challenging mornings with a passage that you would not choose normally to preach. And yet we believe, I believe, this is God's word for us as a church this morning. What a privilege then to sit under the preaching of God's word. Why don't you join with me as we read three verses this morning. Luke chapter 16, verse 16 through to 18. This is the living, breathing word of God, church. Jesus said, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Will you join with me in praying? Lord, we want to thank you this morning for the truth, yet not I, but Christ in me. Thank you, Lord, that you treat us not according to what we deserve, but according to your grace displayed in the Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord God, as we come to this passage, a difficult passage and yet a beautiful passage because it's given to us by you. I pray you would empower the preaching of your word and you would change our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, this morning I want to begin with a wonderful movie that came out in 2006 called The Pursuit of Happiness. Uh, it stars Will Smith, who played uh, Chris Gardner. Uh, it's a true story of Chris Gardner, an African-American man battling homelessness while attempting an unpaid stockbroking internship and raising his son. It's a touching story of a battle against the odds, a struggle to survive. It's a rags to riches story of grit and determination to find happiness and meaning in life. And here is uh, a key quote from the movie where uh, Will Smith, playing Chris Gardner, is sitting with his struggling son, attempting to encourage him in their struggle with homelessness. And he says the following, Don't ever let someone tell you, you can't do something. Not even me. You got a dream, you got to protect it. People can't do something themselves, and they want to tell you, you can't do it. You want something? Go get it. Period. In pursuit of happiness in many ways, it kind of summarizes the thinking of our culture. The way to find happiness in life is to fight for your dreams. 
You must seek what's in your heart and pursue it against the odds. If something stands in the way of you getting what you want, you overcome it no matter what. You know, this kind of thinking is so much the air that we breathe that exists everywhere in our culture, including the church. It means that when the Bible comes to talk about laws and obedience, it's very confusing for us, even at times concerning. You know, we think of laws as being like bars in a prison cell, restrictive. They stop you from enjoying your life and following your dreams. I mean, surely grace means that the law no longer has anything to say to us as Christians. Um, If God is good, surely he would never seek to put laws and restrictions on his people. You know, it reminds me of a story I've told before uh, of a time uh, in my youth when I was out for drinks with some friends at the Glasshouse Tavern in Wollongong, known as the Classy Glassy, because it wasn't. Uh, in fact, I found out this week that at the time I used to frequent that establishment, it was number five on the list of New South Wales's most violent pubs. Um, I was with my friends from church, and my friends were having way too much to drink, and I, I challenged them, I said, guys, you shouldn't be doing this. And they said, Brendan, why does it matter? Isn't life all about grace? And that brings us to the question I think we're led to consider from our passage this morning, or we we will soon see, what role does the law have in the life of a Christian? Uh, If you're new and or you're taking notes this morning, I've entitled this message, The Law of Grace. And I've got really two simple points that come from the text, two points, one heart for us this morning, and that heart, which I believe is the central concern of those three verses we've read this morning, is that we would treasure all of the word as a gracious guide for life. I believe the Lord's heart in giving us this passage for us this morning is, its central concern is for us to treasure all of this word, not some of it, all of it as a gracious guide for life. Now, I think it's important to have a caveat as we start out on this passage this morning. Please allow me to adjust your expectations of the next 30 minutes as we delve into the two topics Jesus will raise in our passage. Both the place of the law in the life of the Christian and marriage and divorce are not small but huge topics and you could do a whole series on each of these. There will not be time to delve into the many intricacies of these two topics. This is the 10,000 feet flyover we're doing uh, this morning. It's also true to say that both these topics are incredibly painful subjects. Many people have been deeply wounded by both of these topics. False teaching on the place of the law or prosperity theology possibly has left you feeling deeply wounded or or perhaps because of marriage and divorce as your real experience. Maybe your parents were divorced and therefore these are painful topics. And so my aim really before we start is to lower your expectations this morning, church. I hope this is helpful, but it will not cover every question I'm sure you have about these topics. But at the same time, I want to raise your expectations this morning because I want to raise your expectations for encountering power this morning because this, friends, is the word of God to us this morning as a church. So, With that said, let's dive right into point number one this morning from our passage, which is point number one, the place of the law in the Christian life. You see, to really understand what Jesus is saying in these verses, I believe context is key. 
uh, one of the central themes in Luke's gospel is Jesus' teaching on the importance of authenticity in the Christian life. And God can see beneath your outward actions and he knows what you really think and feel. You can't fake it with God. That's what Luke has been teaching and will teach throughout this gospel. God doesn't just want outward show. He wants authentic worship. He wants people who genuinely love him. And that's exactly what he accuses the Pharisees of repeatedly doing. They were focused on appearances. They were focused on looking pious. And they didn't genuinely love God. They didn't genuinely love his word. And they didn't genuinely love others. And last week we saw Jesus criticizing the Pharisees for worshiping money rather than God. They loved money for themselves rather than using money for God's glory, to love him. And Jesus says, God knows your hearts. And though things look good on the outside, it's really disgusting to God the way you pretend to love him when you really love money. And next week, Jesus is going to be talking about the consequences of this in the fate of those who ignore the scriptures, who superficially appear to be godly, and yet underneath, they actually ignore the teaching of the scriptures. You see, people in Jesus' day and in our day as well often think that if you're rich and prosperous, God must be pleased with you. He must be blessing you. And if you're poor and suffering, you must be cursed by God. But this is not the case. Uh, Next week, we'll see a rich man who's neglected God's teaching and in the end is punished by God, whereas there's a poor man who is blessed by God in the end. And sandwiched between these two passages lies our verses for today. Two passages that portray people who outwardly look to be pleasing God, but inwardly are not faithful to his word. See, the Pharisees and the rich man, who both appear to have God on their side, but they actually don't love his word. See, our passage is about the central concern of Jesus in this whole section, and that is the importance of treasuring all of God's words. Why don't we read verse 16 from our passage one more time. Chapter 16, verse 16 says the following. It says, The law and the prophets were until John... Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Jesus is saying that John the Baptist taught a summary of the message of the Old Testament scriptures, that he was a pivotal figure in the history of the world. See, the Jewish Bible that John the Baptist had, our Old Testament, taught that God made the universe and everything in it, and he made that universe very good. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 The writer says this, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. See, because God is the maker of all, he's the maker of everything, he's worthy of worship and praise, just like we were singing about this morning. Humanity was created by God as the pinnacle of his creation, created different from every other living creature, created in his image and created precious. And he made us like himself in some ways, and he longs to have a relationship with us, and yet we've rejected him. And this rejection in the Bible is called sin. And sin has affected every person, every nation, 
relationally, cutting us off from God. And the result is that we hurt others and hurt ourselves and damage the world. The world is broken because of sin. And God in Genesis 3 curses the world. The aim that the physical world might in some way reflect our spiritual state. Might point us to the fact that we are spiritually not as we should be. That the world because of sin is broken. But God didn't just abandon us. He promised to send a king to make things right. He promised a special anointed king. A Christ in Greek. A Messiah in Hebrew. A savior. And all the way through the law and the prophets. The message is... The king is coming. The king is coming. The king is coming. He will make things right. He will reconnect God to his people and bring the rule of God again on earth. And over hundreds of years, prophets announce again and again and again, he's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Until John the Baptist starts his ministry saying, he's almost here. And then sees Jesus and says in John chapter 1, verse 29, it says the following in John's gospel. The next day he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Jesus is saying, John the Baptist summarized the whole of the Old Testament in pointing to me. And now I'm here, the good news, the the gospel of the kingdom is preached. See, Jesus taught that he was the divine son of God. The king, not only of Israel, but the universe, come to make a way for people to be reconciled to God through sacrificing his own life upon the cross. And on the cross, he would take upon himself God's wrath for us, for our sin. That through faith, through trust in Jesus Christ, we could be declared right before God and rejoin to him. That through his resurrection from the dead, how he ascended on high, he would be able to send his Holy Spirit to all who believe and rejoin them once again to God. And so Jesus explains the message of salvation from the judgment of God. The message of forgiveness of sins and restored relationship with God is being preached everywhere now that I'm here. And then our translation, the ESV and the NIV says something similar. It says, and everyone forces his way into it. And that seems a little bit of a confusing thing on initial reading to read. This word forces or presses or compels should really in this context have a passive sense. And so perhaps better to be translated as the Holman Bible translates, everyone is strongly urged to enter into it. See, what Jesus is saying is John the Baptist summarized all of the Old Testament in pointing to me. And now that I'm here, we're strongly urging everyone to receive me as their Lord and enter into the kingdom of God. Well, that's all well and good, Brendan, you might be thinking. But the obvious question comes from this. If entering the kingdom of God is through trust in the Lord Jesus, does the Old Testament law matter anymore? If it's just through trust in Jesus, isn't it unnecessary for Christian living? And it's almost like Jesus preempts this question and answers it, answers it for us. Read with me again, verse 17. And Jesus said, But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. 
Jesus' answer is crystal clear. There is absolutely no way that any of God's word is void now that I'm here. It will be easier for the entire universe to be destroyed than for one dot. That word in Greek is kariah or seraph. One tiny stroke of a letter of the Hebrew alphabet to pass away. Jesus is saying all of God's word is valid. And Jesus is trying to address a common temptation in all people throughout all generations. Due to the effects of sin, we face a common temptation to minimize and make light of the word of God. To twist it and distort it. To ignore it willfully and not to treasure it. See, as Christians, we face a temptation to rightly focus on the grace of the Lord Jesus at the cross. But then to be dismissive of the rest of the Bible in a way that Jesus does not condone. 2 Timothy 3.16, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, all, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Absolutely all scripture has been breathed out by God and is for our benefit. There are no scriptures that are simply Old Testament bound and have no application for us today. It's true that some scriptures contain shadowy references to Christ that have now been fulfilled by him. For example, the ceremonial laws for sacrifices or civic laws around Israelite society. But that does not make them void. It shows their eternal significance that they pointed to Christ and therefore makes them precious. Ceremonial laws like the sacrifice of animals and incense, laws of purification, they remind us of what Christ has achieved in his death and resurrection. It reminds us of their intended purpose all along. Civic laws for Israel as a physical nation, laws around dressing uniquely or eating kosher or circumcision. They remind us of what Christ achieved on the cross, how he's creating a new nation of spirit and truth in every place. And they magnify our thanks for what he has done in grafting us into his new people through Jesus. We don't deserve it. All scripture is breathed out and profitable. Not simply passages that seem to endorse my lifestyle or mindset. See, part of our misunderstanding about the place of the law is our highly individualistic culture. That makes us think that laws are naturally bad and oppressive like bars in a prison. And yet the law has always been a gift of grace to God's people. It's always been for our good and for his glory. You know, I remember when I was living in Indonesia and we used to travel to a village that was very isolated on the reverse side of a volcano and used to travel this windy road uh, with no guardrail whatsoever And you'd be traveling along thinking, there's no space for even our car here. And then a massive truck would start coming in the opposite direction. It'd be, you know, 50 to 100 meter uh, drop off the side of this road. And you would sort of squeeze right over to the edge of the road to allow this truck to pass you by. You know, the Bible's understanding of the law of God is it's like guardrails on the path to life. It is a gracious gift. And God has always been looking for a people to love and to trust him. And so laws are a gift of grace. They explain how to best live and thrive in the world he has made. They're not arbitrary and they're not cruel. 
They represent the maker's guidebook for making your way through life. The guardrails on the road of life, which I always wished I had in Indonesia, are given to us in this word. That's always been the case. Now think with me, Exodus, God rescues his people from slavery. In chapter 19, he calls them a holy nation. And then in chapter 20, after all of that, then he gives them the Ten Commandments. He doesn't give them the law and then tell them to sort themselves out and I'll come back and rescue you. He rescues them first. Deuteronomy 6 verse 24 puts it this way. Moses writes, and the law commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God. What? For our good. Always. That he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. See, for the Christian, obedience to the law does not lead to forgiveness of sins. And it does not lead to a right standing with God. That is only through trusting Jesus, his life, his death. But that does not mean that the law has no place in the life of a Christian. It is of vital importance. For the follower of Jesus, the law doesn't help your standing with God, but it is full of wisdom for life and opportunities to worship him. This is the reason why Jesus came. It was not primarily because people were simply doing the wrong thing. If, if the issue was that people were just doing wrong things, the law would probably be a good solution for salvation. Get them to do right things. The Pharisees would have been on the right track. The reason for Jesus coming and his criticism of the Pharisees was that there, our hearts were stony cold towards God. We do not love him. See, Jesus' death upon the cross pays the penalty of our sin. It makes a relationship with God possible and allows the Holy Spirit to soften our hearts and transform them to love God. See, the law and the prophets are a guidebook to loving God. In Psalm 1, verse 1 says the following. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but... His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. See, the blessed man is not simply someone who does what God wants, but the person who delights, who loves being told what to do by God. See, loving God is at the heart of what the law and the prophets are all about. Consider what Jesus himself taught in Matthew 22, verse 37. It says, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then listen to this. Listen how Jesus summarizes this. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is what they were always about. The law and the prophets, the same phrase used by Jesus in our passage can be summarized as being about loving God and loving other people. The law reveals God's character. It's a, God gives us the gift of knowledge about how to behave like he does. And when you love God, you want that. You want to know him. You want to be like him. The law alongside the Holy Spirit helps us restrain sin. And when you love God, you want to please him. The law reveals what God loves. And when you love someone, you want to love the same things as them. See, the law has a vital place in the Christian life. Though obedience to the law cannot make us right with God, it is still a wonderful gift for the person who loves God. 
The law to the follower of Jesus is a gracious guide for life. The law to the follower of Jesus reveals the heart of the one we love and it shows us how to please him. And so it probably begs the important question of application for us this morning that I want you to consider, that I believe the Lord wants us to consider, which is this. How attentive have you been to the law of the Lord? I wonder if for some of us this is new. You've never considered the place of the law in your life. I trust this morning you've seen something precious. I trust this morning that we've seen it's a, it's a beautiful gift to us. And I wonder if for others we've just been distracted and this is simply a timely reminder that all of this word is precious. It's an encouragement to meditate on it, to pour over it, to search it and to enjoy it. And that's point number one, the place of the law in the Christian life. But not just point number one, Point number two as well, an example of neglecting the law in marriage and divorce. You know, Jesus having highlighted the reality that all of God's words are precious and will continue to stand throughout all eternity, highlights a crucial example of where his word can be neglected. And that is on the issue of divorce and remarriage. Read with me verse 18. Jesus says this, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now I want to say this is, this verse is extremely challenging for a few reasons. Firstly, as I've mentioned before, this topic of marriage and divorce, it's incredibly personal and, and a painful topic. I know many people here have been touched by this. People who have been through horrible divorces. People who have who have remarried and children who have suffered from the brokenness of divorce. And so this is not an intellectual exercise, if that's you. This is real. This is pain. Also, secondly, there are many incredibly broken and complicated and messy situations that people can find themselves in. And and so you approach this passage craving answers to your questions. And we simply don't have time this morning to explore all of them. And thirdly, this is a brief summary of Jesus' teaching on the topic, but it's not all that he taught on the issue of marriage and divorce. And therefore, it's easy to misunderstand what Jesus is saying because Luke is, in fact, summarizing him this morning. See, Jesus was teaching at a time when divorce was a widespread practice with some rabbinic schools of thought suggesting that divorce should be possible for nearly any reason. In many ways, this makes this word timely for us because in 1975, Australia passed the Family Law Act, which means that here, a marriage can end without any reason at all. As of 2020, one in three Australian marriages end in divorce after an average of 12 years. It's a huge issue for us. And that figure doesn't include the many, many Australians who never get married in the first place and therefore are not even represented in in that statistic at all. 77% of Australians cohabit before they get married. And so we can be tempted similarly because of our culture to disregard what God's word on what marriage is and to disregard why divorce is something that God deeply grieves over. See, Jesus' main purpose in this passage is to show us that marriage is a precious gift from God that is to be treasured and upheld. And this, therefore, is an example of where the law can be deliberately ignored. Read with me what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. 
It says, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? There, that's the cultural context. Any cause. People were getting divorced for any reason. And he answered them, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. See, Jesus taught that marriage is something that has its roots in creation itself. It was designed not by government, not by culture, but by God. God created marriage as the joining of two equal but complementary genders, male and female. God created marriage to be diverse. Gender is a key component of a marriage and both are to be represented in a marriage. Diversity matters to God. And like a puzzle, they form together one flesh. It's a picture of this incredibly intimate and permanent union. Like becoming a new person. Where this kind of one flesh joining occurs, Jesus teaches, God is at work. Therefore, it should be lifelong. It should not be pulled apart. See, Jesus in this passage is not attempting to say that divorce is never permitted. He's already said that not one dot of God's law will be rendered void. And that includes Moses' permission of divorce. Jesus wants them to see, rather, that divorce is always tragic. It is not in accordance with God's purpose for marriage, which is lifelong joining together as one. See, Moses was giving a concession to hard-hearted people. If you're trying to justify divorce for any reason, you've missed Moses' intention and God's, says Jesus. See, divorce, according to the Bible, is always tragic. But it's not always sinful. An example would be right at the beginning of Matthew chapter 1, when describing how Joseph discovered for the first time that that Mary was with baby, it says the following, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. See, quietly seeking to divorce Mary, who he thought was unfaithful, was a sign not of his sinfulness, but actually of Joseph's righteousness. It was because he was a just and upright man that he sought to divorce her quietly. See, if marriage in the Bible is a one flesh union, divorce is like amputation. No one approaches amputation joyfully or lightly. It's a last resort. Amputation is is a tragedy. It's painful. It's an awful intention or intervention for limited circumstances. And Jesus was speaking to a culture that practiced easy divorce for nearly any reason, somewhat similar to today. And so Jesus is assuming his audience knows that there are some situations where divorce is tragically permitted. And so Jesus speaks in a similar way, in fact, a similar abbreviated way in the Sermon on the Mount itself. Jesus says the following in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother is something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Jesus is talking about this brother who is something legitimate against you. You've wronged them in some way. But rather than saying when your brother has something legitimate against you, he assumes that you know what he's talking about. And similar to our passage here as well. In Matthew 18, or in Luke 16, 18, Jesus says, 
Everyone who divorces his wife, and you could insert without legitimate reason, and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband, and you could insert without legitimate reason, commits adultery. Well, that begs the obvious question. What are the legitimate reasons where divorce is not ever required, but permitted? It's worth noting before we briefly discuss these two points about divorce, uh, which is the end of marriage. We're talking about divorce, which is the end of marriage and not separation, which is something more temporary. You see, in some situations, and I think it's really important that we hear this this morning, separation may be necessary for a time to lovingly stop someone from sinning. Uh, An example that comes to mind is the issue of domestic violence. It may be necessary to separate for a time to protect a wife and children, all the while praying for repentance and with a heart, a desire to be reconciled. I cannot allow you to continue to sin against your family in this way. So we must be separated for a time, but we're longing that you will change and that we can be reunited again. Well, there are two reasons the Bible gives where divorce is permitted, but not required. And the first is that divorce is permitted, but not required on the grounds of sexual immorality. Jesus says himself in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, he says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. See, Jesus taught that because sexual intimacy is at the heart of a marriage, sexual immorality has such destructive power that it's able to dissolve a marriage. And yet God is redemptive. And in the Bible, it's only death itself that requires the end of a marriage. And therefore, there's still hope, even in sexual immorality, for a marriage to be restored. And yet Jesus acknowledges that it is permitted here. So the first is, divorce is permitted, but not required on the grounds of sexual immorality. The second is this, divorce is permitted, but not required on the grounds of desertion by an unbelieving spouse. In 1 Corinthians seven fifteen, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And Paul, in this passage, is talking about a situation that he says Jesus did not address in his ministry. If a husband and wife are in a pagan marriage and one is converted, but the unbeliever wants to leave, what should happen in that situation? Two people are married, the unbeliever says, I don't even know you anymore, I'm out of here, what should we do? And Paul is arguing that here, divorce is also permitted but not required. See, Jesus wants us to help these disciples to see an example of where we're tempted to abandon faithfulness to God's word, to reject it due to misunderstanding about the gospel. He's trying to say, here's an example. Marriage is close to God's heart. Don't treat it lightly, it's a precious gift. And yet there's an even greater reason why we are to treasure marriage. Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See, marriage was always designed by God to reflect the way Jesus loves the church. A husband's perseverance and sacrifice again and again and again is meant to display Christ's love for his people. The way a wife loves and treasures and serves and honors her husband is meant to display the way the church loves and treasures and serves and honors and remains faithful to Jesus. 
Jesus doesn't just give up on the church. He doesn't just try for a while and then leave. He doesn't cheat on her. He doesn't abuse her. He dies for her. And that is God's intention for our marriages. To display the wonderful reality of the love of Christ for the church. And so divorce is particularly tragic because it paints a false picture of the relationship between the Lord Jesus and the church. Well, that's point number two, friends. An example of neglecting the law, marriage and divorce. Well, as we close, I want to just pause and consider once more, how should we rightly apply these verses? Well, the answer, I believe, is by treasuring all of this precious word. Not because we can earn forgiveness, but rather because it contains the heartbeat of Jesus who we love. Because it's a good gift that is filled with wisdom for life. But as we close, I just thought maybe I could give three areas of application where, or three different situations where I think this word today might speak to. Maybe you're here as we close, and you're aware of an area where you've not been faithful. Maybe you're contemplating divorce, but not for the right reasons. Maybe you're divorced and remarried, but you realize you got divorced for the wrong reasons. Maybe there's some area where you've been ignoring a sense that this is wrong what I'm doing and justifying it to yourself, saying, oh, but it's grace, it's all grace, it's all good. Drinking or laziness or a lack of generosity or lying or cheating or pornography. I think a right application of this word today is to confess your sin and to repent of it. And the Lord Jesus is faithful. He will forgive you. Use this body, the body of Christ, this community to help you to be faithful to Jesus. In particular, if you're remarried and you've remarried for the wrong reasons, I just want to clarify, that doesn't mean leaving. That would be to repeat the sin all over. But bring it to Jesus. Confess it and seek his forgiveness. Secondly, maybe you're here and you realize... You just don't know huge sections of this word. You've, maybe you thought the Old Testament stuff, it's not kind of relevant to me. And, and so you've just been ignoring all of God's word. And, and I just want to invite you, come on a path of following Jesus by treasuring all of this word together. Find someone who can help you to study it, to understand it, to, to, to disciple you in it. Sign up for one of our Bible studies. And as you study, ask the Lord to search your heart and reveal to you areas of disobedience, where you've not been living in accordance with this gracious guide to life. You know, we want the risen Lord Jesus to help us to live authentically for him and not like those Pharisees in the Bible. And thirdly and finally, maybe you're here and you don't know this word because you don't know Jesus as Lord. And I want to thank you for coming here this morning. I want to thank you for listening online. And I want to invite you, we would love to pray with you today to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. We believe that Jesus is the best thing that could ever happen to you. He can change your life. He's changed my life. Maybe though you're not ready for that. I just want to invite you as Austin did before. A great place to start is by finding someone to read God's word with. We want to invite you to read those 18 sentences with a friend to help you meet Jesus for yourself. Well, as we close, I just want to share a brief story that I think encapsulates what we're talking about this morning. My son, Elijah, I love him to bits with his quirky ABC obsession. He's two and a half years old, 
And I have a rule that he must always hold my hand when we're near the road. It's an obvious rule for anyone with kids because kids, well, they're just not that wise. And uh, yet recently he's taken to pulling his hand away and just bolting, running away from me. Uh, I was bringing in the bins or uh, just last week. And I did that just with our neighbor uh, and their son, Archie, who's about the same age as Elijah. We've got this long battle X driveway. And Elijah just pulled his hand away and started bolting down the driveway. And I realized um, when it was too late, he was always sprinting down the driveway. And I started sprinting down the driveway after him, down to the main road beneath. And he turned up and looked at me and paused just as he got to the bottom, just in time for me to grab his hand And just a moment later, a a massive white Audi SVU sped straight down our street. See, Elijah probably felt I was restricting him by holding his hand. But actually, I was caring for him. I was protecting him. I was actually not restricting him, but enabling him to later run free because I love him. How much more our Heavenly Father friends with this word. Would we treasure... All of this word as a gracious gift from God. Would you pray with me? Well, God, we want to thank you this morning that just like a father with a little son, you're so kind to us, Lord God. You are gracious. You love us and you patiently shepherd us even when we're so slow of heart to listen to you. Help us, Lord God, this morning as your people to listen to you, to listen to all of your words, Lord God, to see them as what they are, a gracious gift from you, Lord God. And would the fruit of that be all the more glory to the one we love, our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.